welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by GoDaddy.com where you can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30%. Just head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab in the GoDaddy icon and you'll save 30% today. So today's episode, I am super excited to put this episode out to the world. Today's episode is with Professor Peter O'Sullivan. He is the Professor of Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy at Curtin University, West Australia, and is a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist as awarded by the Australian College of Physiotherapists in 2005. His private clinic is Body Logic Physiotherapy in Perth. He has an international reputation for clinical research investigating the development, multidimensional assessment, and targeted management of chronic spinal pain disorders. He has also developed a management approach for chronic low back pain called cognitive functional therapy. He has published over 190 papers with his team in international peer-reviewed journals, has presented the findings of his research at more than 90 national and international conferences, and has run clinical workshops in over 24 countries. His uh, expertise is linking of clinical research to the clinical setting. So this episode was recorded live at the Combined Sections meeting in San Antonio in front of about 20 students. Uh, It was a great experience for me. It was a great experience for the students, and I hope a great experience for Professor O'Sullivan. Um, I really want to give a huge thanks to the section on women's health, to Dr. Sandy Hilton for helping to organize uh, this interview and get us a room and make it a little bit more formal. So thanks to, uh, to the section on women's health and Dr. Sandy Hilton. Now, Dr. Peter O'Sullivan, I mean, what can you say about this man? He is... He is kind and he is generous with his time. He's generous with his knowledge. Brilliant man. Um, If you're not following him on Twitter, get onto Twitter and start following him because he really disseminates some great information. So if you're not following him, follow him on Twitter. Okay, so what do we talk about in this episode? Oh my God, there is so much. So we talk about why you should validate your patient's pain experience why you should understand their beliefs and fears, and disconfirm them through behavioral learning. The link between a practitioner's language and self-efficacy, the informal and non-threatening art of Peter's initial examination, which, you know, there are some uh, YouTube videos of this. I suggest you watch them. Maintaining professional boundaries with chronic pain patients to avoid burnout. We talk about the stability of the pelvis. This seems to have people all up in arms across the, uh, the Twitter verse there. So we do talk a little bit about that as well. Um, and it's, you know, the bottom line is you have to build a strong therapeutic relationship. If you want to see the patients engage in their program and take more control over themselves and over their pain, you have to do this. It's imperative. And and that's one of the biggest take-home messages I got from Professor O'Sullivan. Now, if you head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com or you're on social media, you're going to see the graphic for this week's podcast. And there is a funny story behind it. So you could see we're kind of near each other, but not really. And that's because I was telling him... Uh, over the, our time at CSM, how because of my own chronic pain struggles, I used to really, really dislike people touching me. Like I couldn't go to a physical therapist. I couldn't get a massage. Even getting a pedicure was, was excruciating. And so you could see, so he was putting his arm around me, but didn't want to touch me. So that's kind of the funny story behind that picture. Um, so anyway, this is, this is a great episode. I am, like I said, thankful to Professor Peter O'Sullivan, the section on women's health, Dr. Sandy Hilton, 
And of course, today's sponsor, GoDaddy.com. So for all the listeners of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. Find out why so many business owners choose GoDaddy to be their domain name register. So you can, it's easy. I, I use GoDaddy for all of my domain name needs. If I can do it, I'm not the most tech savvy person in the world. Anybody can do it. So all you have to do is go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab, and then click on the GoDaddy icon and start saving 30% today. With that said, everybody, please, please enjoy today's episode with Professor Peter O'Sullivan. Okay, so Peter Osa, Professor Peter O'Sullivan, thank you for coming on the podcast and for taking the time out to do this live in front of students at CSM. Pleasure. All right, so we have just spent a couple of days together. Um, I took your two-day course, which I have to say was, it was great, and it was, I very much identified with, so I think it's going to help me in the long run, for sure. Hmm. So what did you find particularly interesting? Um, So what I found particularly interesting was just the way that you spoke to the patients that were there um, and that you weren't afraid to elicit an emotional response from the Mm. patient. You know, so, I mean, we're here with a group of students. So what is your advice to that? Can you speak to that? Because I think oftentimes, like, I mean, how many people here want to make their patients cry? No hands up. Right. So, so can you kind of speak yeah, to sure. that? Because I think it's important. It is really important. And um, it kind of highlights a paper that we had published uh, last year that looked at uh, people's uh, consideration of psychosocial factors and people with pain. And um, we have a tendency to run from them. Uh, we have a tendency to stigmatize people who have got psychosocial factors as difficult or um, got issues and we're not very confident to deal with emotional stuff because I think we don't know how to handle it and I think we don't feel trained to handle it. So probably in a, it reflects partly our training um, where we've probably had a very bio focus around our management and so we ask people about their pain and their eggs and easing and we screen out for red flags and then that's it and so if people start divulging the impact that pain has on their life it gets very uncomfortable for us so um, I tend to say to people how would you treat your best friend so if you saw your best friend was sad or they look down or they look stressed what would you say what would validation is you look like you're in a really tough place that you've had a really hard time and that must be really hard for you that's what you would want someone who cared for you to say Mm -hmm. and our patients come to us because they want us to care for them Uh, they want us to give them an understanding of what they're dealing with and they want us to help them get back to the stuff they love and if you don't consider those things you're missing a whole piece of the puzzle right so if you're just saying what makes it worse what makes it better and then moving on yeah, and we've, we've looked at this with um, uh, a lot of common therapeutic interactions where when a patient starts to divulge something around the impact that pain has on their life or the fact it's getting them really down or the fact they're really scared or the fact that they're having panic attacks, often we shut down and ask another question instead of saying, mm-hmm. hey, let me just grab that for a moment. What is it that you're thinking is happening? Because it's only until we really understand someone's beliefs and a lot of this is the stuff that they've been told, which would terrify all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it's not like we can blame them. Right. And it's when people can't do the stuff that's really important for them, which a lot of people in pain can't, it'll get them down. So that's completely normal. So rather than stigmatizing them as depressed and catastrophic thinkers, we should be thinking of them as distressed people because the, the system's failed them. Mm-hmm. And so what do you say to that patient that comes in and says, you're because I know you see a lot of patients after they've been to many other practitioners so you have a patient that comes to you and says well my spine is crumbling you know my hip is falling apart my spine is crumbling and and let's say the person's 50 yeah you know and that'd be tough yeah being 50 well (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, relatively. I mean, that's it's so 50, old, right? 50 and that it's young. No, 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 no. I meant, let's say they're only 50. All right. That's and they've okay, been then. told, you have this spot. I mean, you have imagine this. Imagine <laughs> being 50. Gee, that was dumb. Or, you know, like, you, like, so, yeah. you have the spine of a 90 yeah. year old. Yeah, so have, it's a really common thing. It, it happens and, all the time. And um, the story of um, Jack, if you look at our YouTube clips, was a 17 year old with back pain who got told he had a back of a 70 year old. It had a devastating effect on him. And we saw him when he was like 24 and he wasn't able to work. He couldn't walk, he couldn't do anything. So those, that kind of language, if you actually sit and think about in your body that your spine was crumbling, what would that do to you? Frighten, now, scare the crap out of you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the most trusted people are doctors and then behind that are us. So it's so important with the language we, we, that we give. And I, I suppose the first thing I'd say is, wow, that must feel terrible. If you honestly believe your back is crumbling, that must feel terrible. Can you tell me where you got that from? And they might say, look, my doctor did a scan and it shows it on the scan. So the next thing I'd say, is that something you feel yourself or is that something you've been told? So some people actually embody that. So the picture of their back is that it is crumbling. And others go, look, I don't know. The doctor told me. So that's an easier kill because mm. you can easily shift that person. But if they go, yeah, I can feel it crunching around and it's like terrible, <laughs> then you go, that must be tough for you. I need to look at your scans. So a really important thing that we would do then is to put the scans up, either on the computer or on the screen, depending on what they have. And then I would say, can you show me your crumbling spine? Because most people have never, had no idea what a spine looks like, let alone what looks like crumbling. And inevitably, it doesn't look too bad. Right, <laughs> and, right, right, right. And you go, let me just explain what the spine looks like. And you just de-threaten it. So you go, look, here are the vertebral bodies. And look, these are the discs. And you know these changes here? These are the things that have come up on your report. Do you understand how common they are in people your age who haven't got back pain? Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of silence. You go, no, no idea. You go, well, actually, really good studies that have done in populations of people without pain that show that these kinds of changes are really common and they don't predict pain and disability very well at all. Now, that doesn't take away from the pain because you may have something like a modic change on a scan and you may have advanced degenerative changes. And you may, those structures may be symptomatic. But the cool thing is that we know is that there are lots of things outside your structure that can sensitize your spine that gives us an opportunity to change. Mm-hmm. And ironically, if you do have, you know, so advanced degenerative change and inflammation around the end plate, these people are so frightened, they're co-contracting around their backs and loading those structures up big time. Mm-hmm. So they're actually doing themselves in. Yeah. So there's all kinds of opportunities you can take from that moment to build resilience back in that person. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to, I know you talked a lot about this in the two-day course, and this got a lot of people uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Um, I can hear it coming. Super uncomfortable. And the other thing was the stability of the pelvis, which got people all up in arms. Mm. uh, So can you kind of speak a little bit about talking about the stability of the pelvis and then how that, what that co-contraction means? Yeah, okay. So two things you're asking here. One is about the pelvis, pelvis right. itself. And if you look at the pelvis, <clears throat> like the sacroiliac joint and the pelvic ring, it is incredibly stable. So you've got this extraordinary ligamentous network that is just really strong that binds those joints together that is able to effectively transfer force. You've got a joint that is not concave convex. It's like an irregular joint that when you apply compression acts like a cam. It's really, so you put load on that and your muscles activate, that is not going to move. And that's been showed in uh, imaging studies that have looked at um, people, you know, look moving. It's like, what is it, 0.7 of a millimetre? So if you're skilled enough to tell me what's stiff or mobile out of 0.7 of a millimetre, I'll take my hat off to you. <laughs> because we know that those movements are so damn small. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're tricking me if you think you can tell what's stiff or mobile. So uh, that's the first thing. Yeah. So, and the whole issue around uh, pregnancy is really interesting because, sure, 
the cool thing about the, the female pelvis is that it, ligamentous changes do happen that create a certain amount of flex in the system to allow you to deliver a child. Mm-hmm. But there's no evidence to say that the amount of mobility in that pelvis is the thing that predicts that you have pain. Like women will become more flexible around those structures, but there's no, there's no study that's shown a clear relationship between having more mobility that I've seen and having pain. And we look at the risk factors for developing pain in a female, and we talked about this in the talk today, is that females develop more sensitivity around the pelvis. That's probably a evolutionary protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. And when you stress that individual, be it social stresses, mood stresses, not enough sleep, you know, those factors that can further be sensitizing, that could manifest itself in pain Mm -hmm. but we default by saying oh my god you're pregnant therefore you've got mobility therefore that's the reason you got pain and then we say oh therefore it must be because you're too flexy and we need to stiffen you up Mm -hmm. right and so we Mm -hmm. kind of fall into that trap where and it's an it's a bit like the joint hypermobility story in adolescence i mean adolescents are hypermobile and (laughs) girls are more hypermobile so we look at population studies and go is there a difference between the mobility of these people and does it predict pain? No. But when people are frightened, what do you do? When you're frightened, you fire adrenaline to your body. Mm -hmm. What is adrenaline for? Fight, flight, fight. Great for running from danger. Crap if your danger's in your pelvis. Mm -hmm. So what are your options? You protect it or you avoid it. Uh So how do you protect it? You co-contract. What do you co-contract with? The muscles that operate around your pelvis. It could be your glutes, your back, your pelvic floor, your abdominal wall, generate abdominal pressure, your adductors, whatever you can access to protect those structures because you're sensitized and feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so that has a habit of then loading up painful structures and then that's primed by your central nervous system because you're freaking out and you're worried and then you're stressed and you don't move and then you're in trouble and then it just keeps circling and circling and circling classic circle yeah so you know the more you protect it the more you load it the more you avoid the more down you get because you can't do the stuff that you want to do and the more stressed you get and so you pump all those stress hormones into your system and you fire up your system and you're trapped and then you're, yeah, then you're, you're trapped. trapped. And you're then trapped. you're going from person to person to person Got to it. try Being and fix you. being told the same story. And we had that story in the talk today of Sally, mm-hmm. who had 12 years of being told her pelvis was damaged and unstable and to rest and protect and avoid. 12 years, and it ruined her life. Her, yeah. t- her kids were grown, you know, like grown. They missed her, their growth years, and she couldn't play with them. It's terrible. So we see the out of that belief system and it can be really devastating Mm -hmm. for a vulnerable group of people and if we Mm -hmm. look at who's vulnerable they're people who are naturally prone to anxiety yeah so they take a negative thing and they worry about it so you know the people who are not got high levels of self-efficacy and they're not anxious probably just dismiss it the ones who are vulnerable it becomes a trap Mm -hmm. and when you're talking so this was an interesting question that someone had posed on Twitter as I was tweeting your two-day course and they said well if someone is in this state of pain whether it be low back pain or pelvic pain why would you want to relax the back muscles why wouldn't you be strengthening them because they're obviously weak okay so there's a really big difference between tension and strength so you can be very tense but weak Okay, mm-hmm. you can be walking around protecting those painful structures, but also avoidant and deconditioned. So we've got to separate those two things out. The strongest people in the world are often pretty relaxed, mm-hmm. right? So take Usain Bolt. What does he do before he runs? He's fidgeting around, mm-hmm. flopping about, and then he generates extraordinary power and beats a world record. So those two thoughts are often mixed up. So it's, we encourage our patients to be strong and powerful and resilient to do the things they love, but we see them protecting their bodies when they're lying in bed, when they're rolling over, when they're getting out of a chair, when they go to pick up a pen off the ground, where they dress, that is not normal. So co-contraction creates stiffness and guarding on painful structures that can just exacerbate the process. And therefore, they attract to go and do the things they love, so they become deconditioned. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so then the, the question is, what do we do with these patients? So, right, great. First so how thing, do you... cut the crap out. 
<laughs> so first thing is you go, hey, do you understand that your structures are really, really, really strong? They're really resilient. Do you understand that there are studies around that have just stuck saline in the ligaments of the pelvis and created all those kinds of pain symptoms? So the, the issue with your pain is about tissue sensitivity. It is not about your structures being damaged and vulnerable. If you're freaking out, we want to reassure you um, in a sensible way. If you're not sleeping, then we want to get encourage you to develop help, healthy sleep habits. If you're not active, we've got to get you active because it's wonderful pain relief. Mm-hmm. Um, we, if you're not, if you're not confident, we need to give you strategies to relax your body, to then have the confidence to move, to get back to the things you love. That's what we do. And. What would be, and I know we sort of, you spoke about this probably today and, and in the two-day course, but what are some strategies to help people relax? Yeah, so um, breathing techniques have been done for thousands and thousands of years, and they're wonderful. So we know they use for anxiety disorders. So if someone's having a panic attack, you slow your breathing down, breathe through your nose, fill your belly up, slow your breathing rate, and it pulls you out of an autonomic response, and it makes you feel calm. So that's a cool place to start. It also picks your pain thresholds up and it also makes you feel happier. So there are some pretty cool studies looking at manipulating breathing, showing it has this autonomic, uh, this uh, response in your sympathetic nervous system to upregulate your parasympathetic. So if you feel calm, you're not going to panic when you go to do a scary thing. So say, take, for example, you know, getting, going from sit stand or bending over is a really mm-hmm. common one. Mm-hmm. So then we would get someone into sitting and just get them to relax their body. And we, you know, we had a case yesterday, as you saw, it was really, 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 really challenging and threatening mm-hmm. for that person just to relax. And so she started to panic and I just got her to relax on her elbows, bent forward, hands in the head and just slow her breathing right down and mm-hmm. it caused an enormous amount of emotion but after a while she started to relax and yeah. as she started to relax her body started to let go and as it let go she realized she could bend and as she bent it didn't hurt yeah so that that kind of process which takes a fair bit of courage and persistence on both um, sides yeah totally on both yeah sides, and yeah. a lot of trust yeah and that's why you've got to build a strong therapeutic relationship because you can't just jump in and go oh yeah you're fine right breathe and bend that will not <laughs> that will not go well no. <laughs> so you need time to build that relationship first and then to give an understanding of what's going on and then to go in and give these strategies and the cool thing about that is if the belief is it's dangerous to bend and you show that person that to relax and bend doesn't hurt it really does their belief in mm-hmm. So it's what we call disconfirmation through behavioral learning. Thing to, to take note of is you did this yesterday in an hour. Yeah. Right? So, because I know one of the questions that came up was, well, what if we, we only, we can't do what you do because we only have a half an hour with the patient. Right, and do and it over two sessions. And everybody, right? you get a lot of nodding heads Do it over here. two sessions. So yeah. if you look at someone like um, the person we saw yesterday who's had, you know, really profoundly disabling pain for many years and has had a lot of treatment, a lot of treatment. What's an hour? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. So don't worry about the cost because you could really get someone out of, you know, literally, you know, thousands of dollars worth of treatment heading forward. I mean, I've seen women with their pelvises, you know, fused and not better at all. So they're really expensive and risky surgery. So if you, if you are constrained in a, uh, in a work environment where you have half an hour and you see, that's why if you pre-screen people, so if you do something like the Orobro screening tool, you'll see straight away if you've got a high-risk patient. So mm-hmm. it'll come in as a high screen where the person's distressed and disabled, they're frightened, and then they're down. Then I'd be having a conversation straight up to say, hey, I can see you've had this problem for a number of years. It looks like you're having a real hard time. How do you feel about me examining you over two sessions? So I can really take a great history on day one. And then on day two, we can do a thorough exam and set you up with a plan. I'll be damned if they'll say no. Yeah. That's a great way to to reframe that for patients. Thank you. That's really great. Um, And there's one thing that I wanted you to talk about. So since, which kind of flows nicely from what you just said, I loved what you did at the end of the sessions with, so there were two different patients, and I loved what you did at the end of the session. So can you kind of speak to what you do at the end of that yeah. session with the patient? Because I think okay. it's really great. So the first part is, um, well, through the exam, we kind of see it as storytelling. 
some people call it yarning or having a chat or you know it's like hey and it's like I want to know your story um, the second part is this behavioral learning stuff to go what is going on where are the threats and then once we go through that next path it's saying right I'm going to package everything I've seen and everything you told me to help you make sense of what's going on so for say the person yesterday it was like you've had some serious traumatic events and some of them have been life-threatening that scares the hell out of you and so what does that do it primes your nervous system so it makes you tense it fires up your nervous system and it's linked to pain because you're in pain and you think that something isn't you know something's bad with your system you're protecting it and you've used avoidance as a strategy to manage your life but actually it's had a massive impact on your life you're not playing with your kids you don't socialize you know you've changed your work you don't travel you don't do any physical activity all the things you love you've lost and how does that make you feel it makes you feel like crap so that drives things like depression it's a completely normal secondary response of not being able to do the things you love and so now with your protective guarding and avoidance your world is getting so damn small that it feels miserable so that feeds back into the loop that fires up your nervous system you got yourself trapped so does that make sense and i'll usually go yeah that's me uh-huh. and then you say so what could you do that's different notice is that when you go to move you tense up but when i get you to relax actually you don't have pain what does that tell you it tells me actually bending and relaxing is good mm-hmm. cool so is that something that you could do? Because that will allow you to get back to riding a bike, playing with your kids, sitting out in the movies, doing a whole bunch of stuff you want to do. And I'm like, going, yeah, that sounds cool. So let's make a plan. What do you reckon? So what are the things you'd love to aim for? A, B, and C. What's the strategy? Let's use that strategy. Let's make a plan. So together, collaboratively, we can make a plan to set about a pathway to get that person confident, to get them in control, to get them back to doing stuff they love. Right, and it's important to note that when you're doing this with the patient, that you're writing all of this down for them. Got it. And the patient gets, you have to. You just can't say, okay, got it, great, bye. Mm -mm. So you write it down and you give them the piece of paper so that they can reflect on that and they can continue. And I'll put key words in like, your your pelvis is stable, your pelvis is safe. You know, your body is strong. You know, I want you, often when people catastrophize and they'll ruminate on stuff like, oh, my pelvis is dangerous to move. You want to change that rumination to go, hey, I've got a strong body. When you're in pain, instead of panicking, relax and move. Because that's a way of, you know, dispelling that panic. So put those key points down. I'm really, I get really concerned when people dish out a lot of information and they write nothing down because patients will remember at best three things Mm -hmm. and it may not be the things you want them to remember (laughs) might be something you said by mistake Uh that they hang on to so the other thing that's really cool is to say can you just summarize to me unless you're running really out of time which i usually am um can you just summarize to me what you think's happening and then they might hopefully say well and you go got it so I'd like you to go home and have a conversation with your important other about that tonight and I want you to solidify that and I want you to like keep a diary about what your thoughts and your responses are not about a pain diary Mm -hmm. about your thought diary your behavior diary because that's going to help you and write a list of the things that freak you out and write a list of your goals because they're our targets and why why would you have someone write a list of things that would freak them out? Because because they become our targets, right? So it's right. like, oh, give me your scariest things because that's what we're going to do next time. Right. Be careful on the first occasion because they might not come back. But once they, <laughs> once they trust you, yeah. once they trust you, that's fun. So yeah. you're actually going, hey, what do you want to do? Ride a bike. Great. We're on the bike next time. Picking up the washing. Woohoo. It doesn't sound like fun to me. But for some people, uh-huh. it's really important to feel like they're contributing to a family. And I've yeah. seen women just break down and cry because they feel like they're just a burden. Right. And nobody wants to feel that way. Awful. 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 And you know, at least have an option of picking it up. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to pick it up, but, you know, it's not because I'm frightened about it. Right. It's just, <laughs> just I don't want to do it. <laughs> That's a big <laughs> difference. Um, it's something that you said that I wrote down that I thought was really profound for me was it's not about the stuff you do but how you do the stuff yeah so important so i trained as a manual therapist and i trained for years and years and years to try and palpate stuff and deliver passive interventions and i got myself in a terrible trap 
I got people who would, well, I, it was interesting. When I first graduated, and I wasn't a crap manual therapist, I topped the, scale, I topped the class. Um, so it wasn't that I'm just a failed manual therapist because I do teach the stuff. And I do examine in our college um, for specialisation. Um, but I realised, I, when I first graduated, I worked in a pain management clinic and I worked in a private practice. And I saw the extremes. I saw the worried well come in with a bit of stiffness. Well, manual therapy worked really well. Yeah, I've got a bit of a stiffness here. Give them a loosen up, crack their neck out the door. Hoo-hoo. Um, but they weren't disabled and they weren't really distressed. They just had a bit of soreness and off they went. And it made me realise really quickly that manual therapy has a place for the worried well. Um, <laughs> Were they going to diet? No. Were they not taking time off work? No. And then I worked in a pain clinic where we see people who are completely disabled, coming in wheelchairs, you know, being jabbed, chopped up, drugged, and they were in a really bad way. And these people's lives were ruined. And I realised that those techniques really didn't have much of a place. They didn't work. They made them sore, and they or they didn't build their self-efficacy yeah. and take them back to or what they, they love to do. Or they don't want to be touched. Got it. Like yeah, someone like it. me. Like I don't well, even want somebody to touch me. We could go there because probably it's what you need, but not in this setting. Because <laughs> <laughs> remember, avoidance is not usually very helpful. No, I would have gotten better. We like, could do a group hug afterwards. <laughs> that I'm okay with. I just don't. Just we don't could all lay hands upon you. <laughs> It could be really therapeutic. But, but, that could, that, but that could happen, right? You get these chronic totally. pain people. I don't want to... Well, look, if you look at allodynia, that is like the ultimate in the nervous system saying, back off. Mm-hmm. So I saw a, a young lady who was so disabled and distressed in San Diego, and to touch her made her jump, just to touch her skin. Mm. And she was getting massaged that flared her up. She kept on going back to it. I'm going, that is just nuts. I mean, this woman is highly distressed, very fearful, frightened, protective guarding and not living. That person needs a plan. They right. don't need being pushed on. Right. right. So I'm, I use touch with everybody, actually. So if you did come to see me, you would be touched. Mm-hmm. But I'm really respectful around touch, that it is safe, that it's affirming, that it's confident and clear, it's respectful, that it doesn't force people to do stuff they don't like. It's and do not you ask rough. permission beforehand? Always. Always I use ask permission yeah. because, you know, I deal with people being seriously traumatized and some of that sexual trauma and physical trauma and, um, you know, touch has been abusive, touch mm-hmm. is threatening, touch is, you know, abhorrent in those kinds of settings. And so to touch in a safe way, and sometimes it might take a couple of sessions. I've had patients who say, I'm really reluctant. I was reluctant to come and see you because I don't want you to touch me. And I would absolutely respect that. Mm-hmm. I would have, then I'd say, no worries. Let's work on a plan mm-hmm. that doesn't involve that because I've had such terrible experiences yes. with chiropractors, you know, ripping their head off and physios doing likewise. <laughs> and I have had them as well. I can tell mm-hmm. you, you know, as a training in manip therapy, I had, you know, chronic headaches for, you know, and sciatica. Oh, really? <laughs> from being manipulated badly. So I'm actually really, that was kind of a wonderful experience for me to realise how unpleasant bad touch could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Enduringly unpleasant. Yes. And so before we go to Q&A um, from the students here, I just have one more question. And so I think oftentimes people think that you're not trained as a manual therapist. Mm, oh, how wrong. Right? Or that... Um, and so you said something... That, the other day about, you know, you kind of had to clean out your cupboard. I did. And and we saw that at the two-day course, there was a lot of resistance from, from people in the beginning. But then at the end of day two, it was, tell us more. How, how do we do this? Mm. So how did you get through that bias to get to where you are now? How did you clean wow. out the cupboard, That's so to speak? That's a 30-year journey. Seriously. Yeah. Painful journey, really. Um, <laughs> And look, I'm a real, I'm, I'd like to think I'm a self-reflective thinker. <laughs> so I've learned so much from my patients. And I think, I think um, you know, I can think of key patients that I've seen that have taught me so much. And, um, and it's my failures, really, that have come back. And they've been honest enough to come back to me and say, actually, you really stuffed me up. <laughs> Where I've gone, wow, thank you so much for trusting me enough to come back. And I think they saw my genuineness, that I really cared. But obviously what I delivered wasn't very helpful. And so I suppose across my career, 
you know, seeing clinical patterns has been really helpful, and that's what we've been trying to research and publish, is around these clinical patterns that when we understand neuroscience makes so much sense that within a biomechanical paradigm make no sense. But when you understand neuroscience, and particularly the role of, you know, all of these sensitizing factors, makes so much sense. So, you know, and, you know, our research has done that as well, as we, you know, we went into studies thinking we would find something and we never found it. It disconfirmed our beliefs. And if you're honest with your data, you've got to reframe your beliefs and actually go, what is this telling us? Rather than saying, I'm going to just stick to my beliefs and try and I fudge the data, which I'm sure happens. I'm sure it happens. <laughs> um, so that was the, that's the other thing. And, you know, really, I, there's... I think as I understand the complexity of pain, it's like you just got to go for the big stuff. And the big stuff is not joint mobility. The big stuff is not palpating an individual <coughs> level, which people can't agree on anyway. It's not identifying as something mobile or hypermobile. It, it's the big stuff. The big stuff is what are you thinking? How's it affecting you? What are your behaviors around pain? You know, are you living? They're the big things. And often these special tests that we've created, really created, they're a f creation of ours to kind of make us so feel special. valid and not so special. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really predict very much. And they're a massive distractor. Mm -hmm. So we see people typically, you know, going for exams, doing 30 tests and being completely confused and hasn't even listened to the person's story. Mm. Now, you know, you can screen neurology by doing a squat and looking at gait and getting up on your toes. You don't have to lie them down and do that for power. You can screen a slump by seeing if they can bend down and touch their toes. You can screen for a whole bunch of things without doing a whole bunch of tests. So a lot of functional things that we're just looking at, sit to stand, stand, bend, you know, gait, whatever's meaningful for that individual become your key elements around your exam, around observing behavior. And I think that's the other thing. We see movement as behavior. Um, so there's a cool book called Blink, uh, written by Malcolm Gladwell. If you haven't seen it, it's mm -hmm. really worthwhile reading. And it, I love the story about um, how predictive uh, medicos are at identifying people at risk of heart attack in ED. And basically what they showed, the more tests they do, the more crap they are at predicting anything. Mm -hmm. The best practitioners just go for three or four key things. So I'm really good at sieving out the nonsense and going for the big stuff. And the big stuff isn't often the stuff we've been taught, unfortunately. Right, right. That's why the cleaning hard. needs to happen. Um, and then you pull in the key things that we know are really important around pain. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. It's, right. quite, uh, it's quite liberating, yeah. I'll tell you. It's yeah. pretty threatening um, for people watching on when they go, oh, my God, I've spent all that money and all that training, but I so have I. So all I can yeah. say is I've got empathy with you. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. I've been there. Yeah. And, you know, I can crack joints, and I still do. It's kind of fun, but it's, <laughs> it's just so limited as a tool, yeah. and I would never do it with someone who's highly sensitized. I'd never do it with someone who's frightened. I'd never do it with someone who's got really low levels of self-efficacy mm -hmm. and no confidence in their body because, to me, it's tripping them up. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right, so we'll open it up to questions. So if you have a question, uh, if you are at the sessions today, if you have a question, come on up, just say your name and, and what school you're from, but just come up to here, or I'll come to you if you wanna raise your hand. It's a, yeah, come on. Hi, I'm Tara. I'm from ETSU in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. And you know, you mentioned cleaning out your cupboard. Mm. So as students, when we come in contact with CIs or with clinicians that we're around as a student, do you think there's a role for us as students to help CIs clean out their cupboard? And if so, how can we do that without stepping on toes or without being unprofessional? Can you tell me what a CR is? A oh, clinical a instructor. Clinical. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would have been really good for yeah. me to explain that before. So I've got to say, um, my trait recall wasn't great as a student mm -hmm. um, because I was very inquiring. And I, some of my lecturers loved it and some didn't. Um, and I, I just don't handle being told something when it doesn't make sense. So I'm the kind of person, I think I'm probably, I think asking questions is way less threatening than mm -hmm. telling people that they're full of nonsense. And that's the case for patients as well. So I'd be inquiring. And I think the cool thing is to say to someone, hey, I've seen this really cool paper, have you seen it? 
I'd love to discuss that with you in relation to this case, because it seems like some of these things in this case are reflected in this paper. And have you seen this research that's actually shown really cool effects with this kind of case? What do you reckon about that? And they may go, who or who, I haven't seen that. Let me check on it and get back to you. So that's really respectful, um, right. which is how we would treat a patient, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that we come in a sledgehammer, we'll get a backfire effect, you'll get a wall up, and you'll probably get someone you know, who doesn't want to communicate with you. But when we ask a question and we're inquisitive and we're creative, um, and you've got a genuineness about the desire to learn and care for your patients, it's really hard to knock that back. You may well get people who don't want to go there. And you know, we've had situations where um, um, clinical supervisors have been my papers <laughs> before when the students ask the question. So you will always get an element of that. Um, but that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, good one. Yeah, good question. Yeah. yeah, that was a good question. Um, I just was hoping that you could give us some advice on kind of towing the line between empathy and really gaining your patient's trust and kind of letting your patients get too close to you. Oh. Um, advice on kind of keeping that, that yeah. line between you. Right. Oh, oh, I'm Heather. I'm from Marymount University. Great question, Heather. Um, I think the other question that probably comes out of that too, how do you stop burnout? Um, because a lot of people go, oh my God, that must be exhausting when people are crying on you all the time. And, <laughs> and I'm like really clear on my boundaries. So um, empathy is a wonderful thing, um, but I'm really clear on my kind of touch that I use. I'm clear on interpersonal space. I'm really respectful of covering people. Um, you know, so they are really clear boundary things, and I think probably for a male, or a, you know, a male to female, and a female to male, that that's probably really important. So be really clear on boundaries. Be really professional about how you go about stuff, um, and you know, you know yourself when those boundaries get crossed, and you can be really clear on that. So that's probably number one. Um, so you know, you can, and I'm very clear on saying, say, look, hey, look, you're really distressed. Um, you don't need to tell me, you know, you don't need to disclose to me what is happening for you, but is it, is it around the pain or is it something else? So you can actually set a boundary around the way you question that. Um, and some people say, actually, things are pretty tough at home. Then I might say, are you getting help with that? So instead of me saying, ah, what's going on? Oh, I'm getting beaten up. So whatever. Somebody might say that. Then I'd be saying, have you disclosed that to someone else? Because that's really important. And that's, and that's something you need to talk to your GP about probably. And it may be something we need to, if you give me permission, that I can share with one of your carers. So what that's doing is setting a boundary. It's saying, yeah, I really care. I'm interested. But that's not my domain. Because my domain is to understand what's happening with you and your pain, have an idea of the factors in your life that might be a you know, complicating factor, but also have the knowledge to cross-refer if appropriately. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Having a group of people to cross-refer. Got it. You've got to have a network. Really important. And, and you know, suicidality, for example, that's something absolute. You've got to say, you understand I need, you know, if you're serious about that, have you told anyone? No. I, I am mandated to contact your GP. I need to let you know that because that's really important. So things like that are really important. You know, I know my boundary. I'm a PT, right? So I'm really interested in someone's thoughts, emotions. I'm interested in if they're under massive social stress. I'm not fixing that. Okay? My job is to give them an understanding of the pain, take them back to the things they love. I'm not there as a counsellor to deal with their stuff at home. So that's the, the first thing. In terms of burnout, I think... You know, on the first occasion, often there is a lot of emotion, but the fact you're taking them really quickly back to the stuff they love is the cool bit. So that's kind of fun, and it's motivating, and it's not depressing at all. It's just like, woohoo, you're riding the bike, great, let's go picking stuff up. Right, playing with the kids next week, oh, what's the next thing? Ride a horse, cool, let's go for it. So that's really motivating, and it's fun, and it actually makes you feel great. So sitting in sympathy with someone who's miserable is terribly depressing. Taking someone on a journey is really um, energizing. Anyone else? Yeah, come on up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best dressed man in the room because I don't want to. I have to. No, come on down. Bring come it on up. down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just so people know, he's extremely tall. That's so me. for people. My name is Joe Daniels. I'm a third year DPST student at Nova Southeastern down in Fort Lauderdale. Um, you mentioned cleaning out the closet. Yeah. Obviously, DPT student in the states. I'm not sure what it is like in the rest of the world. Um, 
is not where it needs to be in terms of pain science education. Yeah. Um, what would be maybe the top three resources that you would recommend to mm-hmm. PTs, PT students right. to refer to for yep. pain science education? Okay. So um, uh, in terms of pain science education, so the Noi group, Laura Mosley, Body and Mind um, have got some awesome stuff on their websites and they've got books and resources that you can access. Uh, and I think, I think the thing there is that's a really important for us to understand the neuroscience. When we tell a narrative to the patient, it may not be neuroscience. We're not talking neurotransmitters and C fibers and stuff. We, might, we tend to focus on the drivers of the neuroscience because so, they are the tangibles that they can change. Um, so, you know, this, the distress, the fear, the lack of sleep, the avoidance of predictive guarding and those kinds of things are the wind up in the system. Some people, it's really helpful to have an understanding of that and there's some great video clips. So Lauren has done some cool YouTube clips that you can send people to. Um, we have also resources on our pain ed website. We're probably a bit more on the clinical. We would tend to um, focus on the modifiables to go, what are the things you can do to modify the neuroscience? So that's really our, one of the areas that we really love to do, is to kind of go, what are the things that can take you on a journey to change that neurophysiology really quickly? And I, I often think we don't realize just how plastic that system is. It is so damn plastic. So the person who was there yesterday having a pan attack relaxing was sitting in the front row today relaxed. So, you know, changed. Like the other person we saw the day before who was thinking they couldn't sit or stand or walk was sitting, standing and walking. Like that's a big change, quick. So, you, you know, we don't, we don't, I think sometimes we think this is all hardwired in the brain. No way. The nervous system is so damn plastic. If you can get to it, if you can really get to the heart of what someone's thinking and feeling and validate it and take them on a journey, it can break that schema up. So we're, we're seeing that though, that neural networks are fired by these really unhelpful messages and behaviors and natural emotional responses so I've gone a long way about answering your question but I kind of wanted to add that in so pain ed twitter you know body and mind noi websites Mm -hmm. follow them yeah anyone else yeah come on up and Adrian Lowe I think has done some pretty cool stuff as well so he's worth it by the way yeah he's here well, I mean, he's not, he's not here, here. I've never met him, so I haven't, yeah, he's, I was like going, I'm, He's speaking tomorrow at okay. 11, Okay, I might I pop in for that. Yeah, he's, he, cool. it's definitely tomorrow at 11. I saw okay, him today, cool. yeah. Well done, Adrian. I haven't met you, but I've read your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Haley from Marymount University. Um, during your speech earlier, um, you mentioned how a lot of the times the patients who have the chronic uh, low back pain they're overactive with their transverse yeah. and well, their, um, their abdominal wall. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And so, if if your patient happens to be an athlete, say, and they want to get back to deadlifting or mm. doing an activity where they have to lift, you know, not just bend over and pick up a pencil. Sure. Do you still teach them? Because um, you mentioned how it it co co contracts mm-hmm. and kind of creates a flexor moment. Mm-hmm. So then it's more work for the extensors. Yeah. Do you still teach them to turn off their transvert or their inner obliques, or do you have them still try to brace if no. they're So that's a good question. What kind of weight are you talking? Excuse me, oh, like a deadlift, if, it, if they're Olympic athletes or... Olympic athletes, a little bit unusual, but... Um, so I don't a treat a lot of them. And, and that's, what I, that's what I assumed, because it sounded like you were dealing with, you know, typically yeah, people who are people. in a lot of yeah, pain, and they just want to get yeah. back to functional activities. So, but yeah, if let, it's, let me be clear on yeah. um, the people, people I see. The people, who's costing the money in the system, right? The $86 billion spent in the USA is spent on people who are drugged, who are jabbed, who are, you know, they're disabled, they're not working, they're... That are that front lift their shoe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's where we should be spending our energy. Mm-hmm. So our research is directed to that group because that's where the burden is. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you're into strength and conditioning, wonderful. Yeah. Right? So I've got no problem with being strong, deadlift, go for it. Um, but there are a number of people who hurt themselves deadlifting as mm-hmm. well. And usually they're doing some kind of weird things like, you know, over overextending you know crossfit's a big one i've seen a lot of crossfitters who are like smashing their backs into hyperextension 
massively over co-contracting. It's not normal. Yeah. You know, the human brain, I think, you estimate a load. Like, wh- when you pick something up, when you pick something up, do you think, gee, I'll pre-contract by X amount to pick it up? Or just go, mm, looks pretty heavy. I'll do whatever. Yeah. What do you do? I don't really think about it. Got I think it. I just yeah. tighten my and stomach. Do you know that? And, well, probably. You don't really know, do you? Because you just do what your body yeah, does, right? Because your body's smart. Yeah. So I think we undermine how smart the body is and yeah. we make people too hypervigilant on doing weird things. Yeah. Uh, to me, a good runner is a relaxed runner. Mm-hmm. To me, a powerful athlete is someone who just uses the most amount of power necessary for the task, but they've trained themselves and conditioned for it. Yeah. Someone who gets in trouble is someone who's too hypervigilant and probably obsessed with their technique. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. You know, That's the best athletes question. I've seen are pretty confident and pretty relaxed human beings who just love what they do. Yeah. Mia, hi. It's Keith Snydman <laughs> from uh, Northern Arizona University in Phoenix. We have two, two cohorts. So another manual therapy question because I yeah, asked you one. Yeah, so like one. here in the states, like dry needling is obviously like a really big thing. Mm. And being a massage therapist for like <laughs> 16, 17 years, I've had to sort of remove myself from like this trigger point idea mm. that we're trying to find these sort of these boogeymen in the muscles and like yeah. crossfitters and people that are really yeah. obsessed with their bodies they 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 do the smashing and they mm. really are trying to like get rid of this you know manipulate fashion and things like that like what's yeah. your take on on trigger points because it's very uh, controversial oh god you put a lot of stuff up on that one my brain is spinning when when Lorimer was at the first san diego pain summit i asked him the question too because i just like the pain science stuff kind of makes it seem like you're just sort of damaging tissue and it's probably just irritated, cranky nerves. What's oh, well, your, you know, what's like, your thought? Well, tender points are tender points, right? Yeah. So the system's sensitized. So what makes the system sensitized? Like lack of sleep, stress, overloaded you know, tissue. Ischemia. Yeah, all that kind of stuff can make your system sensitized. Um, fear can sensitize your system. So where we see people, like we see people literally bruising the crap out of themselves with um, rollyball spiky things, you know, sitting on them. And I describe <laughs> it to them as scratching an itch. So I always use the analogy. I see people who literally have scratched, you know, their skin to raw, um, bruise themselves. And when pain is provocative and it's bothersome, and it's irritating and you're hypervigilant, it makes you anxious, you will go at that tissue and you'll see people do self-manipulation. You'll see them yeah, yeah. doing that stuff, repetitively stretching, provoking the crap out of themselves. And I say to them, it's not helpful. So I use the analogy of the dog that's got a sore. You know, when you have a, like our dogs just had some surgery and it, and what does, the, what does the vet do? It puts a bucket on their head, right? So you can't <laughs> the lick cone, the wound. The cone so I say to Pete, you've got to put a bait, virtual bucket on your hand so you can't scratch the wound um, because sometimes it's actually provocative. And you'll see people where they actually become compulsively cracking their joints, compulsively poking themselves and rubbing themselves, and it causes some wind-up. And so I'm not really big on that. Now, if you're an athlete and you're pretty happy and you've got a bit sore, go and do roll yourself out. But if you've got a pain disorder and it's really pissing you off, I bet you that's not helping. And the needling specifically? Well, needling's pretty interesting. (laughs) (laughs) If you look at the studies that are compared um, placebo needling to real needling, they show the same effect. As long as you believe it's in, it has a therapeutic benefit, if you believe it is. If you're of Asian descent, use a bit of incense and you know has some dim lights and cool music, it'll have an even bigger effect. So what is the effect of needling? Maybe it's just to keep people relaxed because they're scared to move. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I personally don't do needles. Yeah. I'm not a needle guy. Okay, I, and I think what it taps into is why would we give you know, look, I'm not really against them as long as you utilize them in a really sensible way and just tell people, look, you know, I'm going to stick a needle in this muscle. It might give you so a little bit of short level of analgesia uh, that will then give us an opportunity to get you going and get you back to living. But don't tell them I'm needling you to fix your trigger points and then they come back again and again forever because that's just mm-hmm. not cool. That's not caring for someone yeah. in my book. Yeah. 
So I think we have time for one more question. So come on over. Oh, a lot of pressure. I, I hope it's yet. <laughs> it look it yeah. looks good. Oh, I, I feel like I'm proposing to you. <laughs> yeah, I'll come down as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Someone's um, going to come below the person. Yeah. Oh, I can get lower. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're going there. All right. Well. Hi, I'm Christine from Marymount nice University, um, and as an athletic trainer, I work a lot with high school athletes, and I'm not really dealing with like LeBron James here. With what, sir? With LeBron James, or I don't know, yeah. he's a basketball oh. player. Oh, right, oh God okay. bless you. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I just, I that's just me. Like I'm like I I'm completely ignorant. Oh, I really don't have any contemporaries I can think of. That okay, that's all right. Okay, I'm with but that. we're going with LeBron. Mm. Um, he sounds cool. He's pretty jacked. He's like mm. kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> so big I don't know him, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. It's fine. So I'm not dealing with someone who like runs Nike. Yeah, got it. But, I'm with you. but I'll go there and you know, these, these kids, they're not chronically disabled, mm -hmm. but I'll see these kids that, oh, like they're sitting out and I'm not there all the time. And I'm like, but why are you sitting out? Um, it's something different every mm -hmm. time. And I'll see these got kind it. of patterns of behavior that like they, yep. It just makes me like weary, like oh, yeah. like oh, be why? wary. Yeah, like they're weary of playing uh -huh. or doing anything. Like, how would you approach someone who's not chronically disabled, but yep. you just want to encourage yep. them or, or like Great educate question. them? With Great last question, oh, and I'll get up I'll to get, answer yeah, it. I'll get up <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you tapping into a whole vein of research that we've done because we've been following yeah. this cohort study. Um, seems weird not talking to you, but I have to talk to the microphone. This cohort study um, has tracked um, a population of Western Australians who probably don't know that basketball. Well, they probably do not know that basketball, actually, because I like, live in a bubble. Um, uh, from birth and now up towards uh, late 20s. And we've tracked the development of pain from the age of 13 or 14 up into adulthood. And we know that... Um, uh, about 45% of 13, 14 year olds will develop pain uh, at some point around that age and that escalates up to about 70% at the age of 17. So something happens in that growth phase. So we know that um, these kind of rapid changes in adolescence is a really risk period for development of pain. And this is a change in skeletal structure. It's a change in hormonal you know, factors. It's a massive social change. It's a change in um, emotional status, all kinds. It's like an explosion happens in the adolescent brain. And I know that because I've got a kid who's 15. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. It is an amazing time. And, and what we know is that around 20% of 17-year-olds um, uh, and a little bit less in terms of the younger ones uh, reporting back and neck pain um, and probably other pains as well um, that they're taking time out of sport and they're avoiding sport and they're avoiding uh, functional activities, they're taking medication and they're seeking care and they're taking time out of school and when we've characterised that group, that group carries an, a, a poorer mental health status, um, they have more negative beliefs around pain and they're often, and those beliefs are reflected in their parents' beliefs. So when we ask the parent, how do you respond to pain? They respond to pain by avoiding stuff. They respond to pain by, you know, taking time off work. So that's all learnt. So actually what you're up against is a, is a belief system around coping with pain. Um, and so what I'd be doing in that kind of situation is just ask them some questions. So, hey, what do you think's going on for you? Um, and now, sometimes it could be other sensitizing factors. So we've looked at the kids at risk, and actually females are at greater risk. Um, uh, comorbid health complaints, you know, like run down, tired, fatigued, look like it's one of the primers, and, um, and a poor mental health status. So those kinds of things are possibly sensitizing factors that when they're involved in sport, they become sensitized, and then they probably worry about it, and then they're thinking, oh, I shouldn't play sport, because there's something damaged. So you can see how that loop feeds itself. Yeah. So your job is to be really supportive, um, understanding, empathetic, and find solutions for them. So we've done a number of studies in adolescence where we've gone into schools and uh, say so we've done taken rowing, which is really highly prevalent back pain. We've gone into schools and we've educated the kids about this resilience of the spine, and we've, you know, checked them out. And like some of them have just got appalling muscle endurance and really poor strength, and they're just not 
physically equipped to pull an oar. So we've gone, right, we're going to get you tough, we're going to get you strong, we're going to get you, whip you into shape and build your strength and endurance and make you feel resilient, and they do great. And so we've tracked that their mental health's better, they engage with the group because they don't feel like they're dropping out, they feel better in themselves, boost their self-confidence, and they're not hurting. So rest is a disaster. Basically, yeah. <laughs> avoidance just is a disaster. It, yeah. We say, if you can't do it, we'll find a way for you to do it. And usually that's just about kind, careful, progressive, you know, loading up the system. Great. All right. Well, before we finish, I just want to thank Sandy Hilton. You're welcome for for bringing you here. Yeah, thanks, Sandy. Um, and for also setting this up, but making sure we had a room so we weren't not like huddled a in a hallway. A room we could find, actually. A room we can, and that we're not like huddled up in some hallway somewhere. And this section on women's health, right. So big thanks That's to the section cool. on women's health and, and to Sandy for being the soon-to-be ex-chair of programming. programming. Cool. <laughs> and, and I want to say thank you to you, Sandy, because... You know, it's kind of cool to come to the section of women's health because women carry the biggest burden of pain. If you look at headache, migraine, neck pain, back pain, pelvic pain, that is where the bigger burden's held. And so, uh, you know, that's really cool to be part of that. And it's been a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all you guys for coming. And, of course, thank you to you for it's a pleasure. being so generous with your time and your knowledge and information. That's it's been wonderful. That's why we do what we do. So our interest is to change the story around pain. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you guys. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.